Hello, do you love swearing? Well, you're in luck. There is swearing in this week's podcast. Enjoy. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing? Adam Buxton here. Thank you very much for downloading this podcast, which this week features a conversation, actually a couple of conversations, between myself and John Ronson. Who's John Ronson? John Ronson is a writer of interesting books. If his writing were a pop song, it would be full of hooks. He likes to think about what makes human beings tick and quizzically prod at them with his writing stick. Yeah, John Ronson in jingle form there. Slightly more expanded version of that would be that John, as well as being a a documentary filmmaker and a brilliant radio presenter, his show John Ronson On, I think can still be found on his website. He's written books like The Men Who Stare at Goats, uh, Them, Adventures with Extremists, The Psychopath Test, of course, which encouraged everyone to go around analyzing their friends and people they knew for signs that they might be psychopathic. Um, Very enjoyable. And this year, 2015, saw the publication of his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It deals with the way that the internet, and particularly sites like Twitter, have facilitated people's desire to engage with acts of public humiliation, to chastise people that they feel have crossed the line in some way, And um, it investigates what happens in those situations, what motivates people to do the chastising, and also what happens to the people who are publicly humiliated, how their lives turn out thereafter. It's really fascinating and compelling and scary as well. I met up with John in New York towards the beginning of last year, 2014, Uh, John lives in New York, and I was out there doing a few comedy shows at places like the UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre, and and good to hook up with John, although I was very jet-lagged when I spoke to him. I'd only arrived the night before, and John was tired as well. He was in the middle of writing So You've Been Publicly Shamed, um, and we met up in this little flat that I was renting on the Lower East Side of New York, And I'd got it off Airbnb. In fact, it was people on Twitter who recommended that I use Airbnb. And it turned out to be fantastic. Although it was a little bit like being in a race ahead every now and again. No dancing chickens by the radiators. But the pipes would occasionally start hissing in quite an alarming way. You might be able to hear that in the uh, conversation. There were a couple of audio problems with the conversation, actually. But I think I've cleaned it up more or less. And we just had a nice, rambly, self-indulgent chat about things like Woody Allen and life on Twitter in general and neuroses that we both suffer from. We're both quite neurotic people, it turns out. And we started by talking about criticism in general, the idea of how you respond to other people's opinions of your work, which can be quite difficult. And towards the end of this podcast, we delve into that subject further in a conversation that I taped yesterday when we chatted on Skype. But first of all, here's last year's conversation with John Ronson. 
what I realised long ago is like if you get a really great review, mm. like the best review you could possibly imagine, I have probably five seconds of satisfaction. Yeah, and Dep- then I forget all about depending it. Depending on whether there are any uh, spelling mistakes in the review, <laughs> that's my <laughs> criteria. Well, no, my thing is like literally. Okay, good. Okay, I can mm. sort of tick that off. That's good. Yeah, and then I forget about it. Yeah. So then, when I st- then then if you get a really bad review, surely you should give it exactly the amount of time. Of course, of course you should. That's very much easier said than done. <laughs> but you know what? I do do it now. Do you? I do. Yeah, I think, okay, that person likes it, that person doesn't like it. That's what if someone funny. really nails something that you are insecure about? And does, uh, does that not keep its claws in you? You know what? Not really. Yeah. I sort of think, okay, that's, yeah, we can all learn. You know, we can all get better. Mm-hmm. It's like if, if somebody who... What, I, if, what, if, what if the implication, though, is that, no, you can't get better, you're just rubbish? Well, then you think, well, they're a troll. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a girl. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think what would hurt me. I think if I was accused of impropriety, <laughs> I'd feel hurt. Um, <laughs> impropriety. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfounded allegations of yeah, impropriety. Yeah, I think that would hurt that me. That would hurt, wouldn't it? Yeah, but um, no, otherwise... Speaking no, I, of which, though, uh, and this is a controversial segue, Woody Allen. Right. Um, we don't know whether they are uh, founded or unfounded allegations, mm-hmm. but what sad times these are to be a Woody Allen fan, someone who you kind of grew up with. I can't speak for you, but I certainly grew up with him being someone I um, loved and respected as a filmmaker. And, and now liking his films is a kind of political act. <laughs> Uh, controversial in all kinds of ways and you feel like you uh you know you have to choose your moment to talk about him or 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 express um appreciation for him he made that transition easier by making mainly bad films for the last 10 or 15 years yeah but then but then like i can't really think of anyone else who's turned it around the way he has yeah that's true i mean like unbroken run of dog plops yeah for about 10 years or something yeah and then blue jasmine was good and then and uh, midnight in paris was good midnight in paris is very good yeah i got into a little bit of trouble on twitter about that right Mm. twitter's not the best place to get into conversations about anything complicated i don't think yeah and yet people regularly do (laughs) well if somebody really um correctly tweeted um that the thing about Woody Allen said it's two moral positions, i.e. sympathising with, with a silenced victim and innocent until proven guilty, mm-hmm. colliding into each other and then exploding. I mean, that's what happened with Woody Allen. It's somebody who I really admire um, and know a little bit as a person yeah. tweeted me some really kind of... You know, hostile. I, I got involved in um, because your position, though, uh, um, is that Twitter is not the best place to 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 make these judgments. Yeah, right? well, my position is sort of based on the fact that I'm writing a book at the moment about public shaming, uh-huh. and so I wasn't actually thinking. I mean, this was, and I'm not saying this, you know, as a defence of myself. In fact, quite the opposite. I wasn't really thinking of the Woody Allen story in terms of what it was about. I was thinking about our reaction towards it as being you know, yet another in a long, corrosive string of, you know, pylons. And actually, it became really clear really quickly that using Woody Allen as an example of that was not a good a idea. idea yeah. yeah, because it immediately becomes about something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still stand by 
you know the pile on the, my criticism of the pile on yeah and i'm sh- and I'm, I'm sure i'm right about that well i was th- looking at a thing the other day about this uh crime author lynn shepherd who i hadn't heard of i must say who wrote something on the huffington post about how jk rowling should stop writing adult fiction oh yeah i heard about this because it was making it difficult for other authors to get um recognition right because everyone was reviewing her. I mean, it was it was a ridiculous piece. Uh-huh. Let's see if I can find it here. Um, it was really insane. And it's... Uh, ah, here we go. She starts off by saying, when, a, when I told a friend the title of this piece, she looked at me, and the title is, If J.K. Rowling Cares About Writing, She Should Stop Doing It. <laughs> <laughs> when I told a friend about the title of this piece, she looked at me in horror and said, You can't say that. Everyone will just put it down to sour grapes. <laughs> and then she co- she continues for about four five paragraphs of just about the sourest grapes you've ever ever seen. <laughs> this is the last paragraph. This is my plea to J.K. Rowling. Remember what it was like when the cuckoo's calling. This book that she's upset about that was originally oh, published yeah, anonymously, that, yeah. and then everyone found out that it was or not anonymously, but under a pseudonym. Had only sold a few boxes, and think about those of us who are stuck there because we can't wave a wand and turn our books into overnight bestsellers merely by saying the magic word. (laughs) By all means, keep writing for kids or for your personal pleasure. I would never deny anyone that. That's generous. But when it comes to the adult market, you've had your turn. She said you've had your turn. You've had your turn. Enjoy your vast fortune and the good you're doing with it. That's nice. Luxuriate in the love of your legions of fans. And good luck to you on both counts. But it's time to give other writers and other writing room to breathe. So she writes this, and it's on the um, Huffington Post. And basically, as you say, people started piling on. Because, you know, justifiably outraged by that ridiculous article... Yeah. But then they then they think, oh, no, she's she's got to be told and she's got to be taught. So then they start going on to her Amazon reviews right. and skewing them so that they're all like one star. And, really? Yeah. Jesus. And just carpet bombing everything, all her online presence with hate and, and saying, don't buy this. This is crap. All her books and stuff, this author. God. And I, I mean, I checked on... On Twitter, she's still tweeting. Like she tweets loads. She tweets about thirty tweets a day or something more Is than she that. Maybe apologetic. Or, uh... Well, I didn't check back that far, but no, not really. <laughs> she yeah. seems fine. She seems fine, which That's I'm, good. which I'm actually glad about because yeah, I, yeah. I, I, people can get destroyed. Yeah, exactly. The whole things happened with the Ross family today. I noticed Jonathan the... Ross's family. No, no, what's happened? Oh, somebody. He was supposed to be presenting some award. And this woman, who might be winning an award, yeah. said, basically, I don't want Jonathan Ross to be presenting this award ceremony because I am overweight and I don't want him making any fat jokes. What? Yeah, so she was thinking there was a possibility. So she was accusing him of something he hadn't actually, accusing him of something he hadn't actually done. And then everyone got very upset and everybody started piling into everybody else and... John Ross's daughter, honey, got involved and was very eloquent uh, about what a nice man her father actually is. 
and now that's all a and big explain that he fuck. doesn't write his own fat jokes anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah the pile on i'm presuming by the way that last thing about that article is that like there's no evidence that if you buy a book it's going to stop you from buying another book there's probably just as many people who will buy a second I mean, it's book ju- it's just because they've enjoyed a first book. yeah it's completely meaningless anyway the yeah. idea that uh, somehow the people at the top are making it harder for you to do your own thing. I mean, that is just insane. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Um, uh, it's the tyranny of um, of having to have an opinion all the time. That is the thing, you know? Yeah. I, I saw someone tweeting a link to the Guardian piece about that mm-hmm. article, and I read it and thought it was bizarre and funny, Yeah, and then sort of thoughtlessly retweeted it myself. But then I thought, oh, no, hang on. I'm just joining in on the I'm just mm. facilitating the pile on here yeah. because I was I was I was sort of retweeting it in the spirit of curiosity and amusement kind of thing. I wasn't about to go and start marking down her um, book mm. reviews on Amazon or, or, or write her hate mail. Or yeah, anything. but even being involved means that you're part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then maybe someone who I retweeted the thing to w- would do that. I don't think yeah. so, because my followers are too nice and level headed. Uh, but uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I felt like the best thing would be not even to engage with something like that. I, you know, I think I think not. Uh, I mean, I love Twitter. I mean, it's because of Twitter that you're staying in this apartment. Well, exactly. Twitter, yeah. Twitter makes things happen. Um, when Chris died, Chris Evie died, it was Twitter that organised a memorial fund for him. So he could so he didn't have to be buried in a pauper's grave. Mm. Um, and like in a day, it raised enough money to bury and exhume and rebury him about half a dozen times Mm -hmm. so twitter does brilliant brilliant things but this aspect of it is very i've got to say this is why i'm writing a book about it it's very important and it's and nobody's really thinking about it but do you do you feel as if it's because twitter's still so young right i mean how long has twitter been around six i've been there for like five years um six years so it's growing pains isn't it for this medium Possibly, yeah. But Possibly. Then, and, and what do you think, uh, have you thought about how it will change, whether it'll get better or worse in that respect? Or I think people need to, this is, this is my most, this is turning into like my most emotional and polemical book. Like I normally have very little, very few firm opinions about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, The Psychopath Test is, is a book that's really sort of set in a kind of grey area. Uh, but with this one, I think I do have firm opinions, which is that public shaming is 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 wrong, kind of in almost every way. And so I'm hoping that, you know, my book will sort of be part of the kind of argument to make people think twice about the way that they're behaving uh, and the consequences of it. I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, that sounds great. Uh, Psychopath Test was excellent, man. I uh, loved thank it. Thank you. Was that, is that your most successful book, Psychopath Test? Yes. That was, I mean, that was like a big bestseller, right? Yeah. Although your royalties are, are unexpectedly low, are <laughs> especially they? if you if you sell all your books to the, to, the, to the big chains. Right. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I'm delighted. I'm not being. I'm not complaining. I sure. Mean, the psychopath testing well is best. It's great. I mean, that is, and it's yeah connected with such a big audience, and um, it's really and a, it's a moral a, book. You know, it's yeah. not a book about let's go out and spot psychopaths everywhere. It's a book about it's a cautionary tale to not do that. So it's actually a moral book about kindness, I think. Because everybody is more or less nuts. I mean, yeah. that's the thing you find out. The older you get, the more you realise that... That we're all you, up. you just You start going wrong, 
towards the end of your 20s because but you don't realize it <laughs> I because you're wrong. so boozed up uh, i went wrong a lot did you go early, wrong earlier yeah, yeah. I, I started going <laughs> wrong about 30. i mean looking but did you feel like you were going wrong though because looking back i can see i started going wrong pretty young but then mm. i didn't realize it i only sort of started realizing like thinking hang on a second maybe mm. i'm going wrong like about 30 or something Actually, no, I, I was wrong from about the age of 14, 15 really? and stayed that way till I was about 23. What were the, what were the um, signals for you? I, I mean, I wonder what I would be diagnosed with now if back in the 80s there was quite the frenzy of diagnoses that there is today. Mm-hmm. I'd probably be diagnosed with ADHD and OCD and body dysmorphic disorder right. and one or two others. Um, but I, you know the fact that I wasn't diagnosed with any of those things that I turned out fine shows that a diagnosis you know in some ways it's neither here nor there yeah because there's a difference between hang-ups mm. and neuroses and being a danger to yourself and a danger to others well all the things I just said doesn't make you a danger to yourself or a danger to others it's, mm. it's all about personal distress. I mean, most a lot, lots of disorders, really, they're judged by, you know, does it matter? You know, if you've got OCD, does it matter? And the answer is, I guess it matters if it's distressing you and if it's impeding the quality of your life. Uh, or distressing others, yeah. Yeah, or distressing others. People love doing little amateur diagnoses these mm. days, you know? So many times... I've gone and seen friends and the, the the conversation will turn to someone or other and they're like, oh, yeah, he's definitely on the spectrum. And all this, <laughs> and they say it absolutely seriously. You yeah. Know, oh, he's a little bit on the spectrum, actually. Yeah. And they're like, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I really hope that The Psychopath Test is a book that's sort of encouraging people to, to, to stop doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are people out there with who are on the spectrum sure but it, i mean the, the one that always bugs me is ocd it's like oh i'm so ocd right. i keep all my pencils in a row and it's like if you were so ocd you would be in turmoil and agony yeah so are you in turmoil and agony <laughs> no then you're not fucking a bit ocd that's what it really i guess it me. all st- like when i was growing up the thing to call people was anal and people still do it you know uh, that, that, that and that's that so that's anal retentive is that freudian uh yeah i think it probably i think it probably is but i'm not 100 percent sure I still don't know what anal retentive really is in like psychological terms yeah it means you want to stuff things up your bum I'm trying to think. Doesn't it mean um, this is going to be quite bad? Oh, I know, because you, you don't want to... You're such a control freak that you don't even yeah. want to get rid of your poo. Right. Is yes. that right? Yeah. I th- something like that. You'd rather so hang on So I wonder whether hoarding your... disorder then is... is but that's is just being there. a man. I tell you, I mean, I've met a few hoarders. It's always about morality. Or the ones that I've met, it's always about morality. So I met one hoarder who was trying to avert ecological catastrophe by basically keeping all the waste that would otherwise go to a landfill. Oh, man. Yeah. You and see, I can semi-sympathise with that. Yeah, well, it's moral. It's a morally yeah, good yeah, position. Yeah. I get very upset about all that. breaks my heart that, you know, the, be- like the, the most painful disorders are all ones that come from wanting to be a good person. Specifically, though, as far as throwing things away, are you someone that is quite good about getting rid of stuff like memorabilia yes i'm fine i don't have this 
I don't have this problem. I have uh, other problems, but I don't have that problem. Oh, I've got that problem. I've got terrible anxiety problems where I get into a kind of completely irrational spiral about some bad thing that might happen. Uh-huh. And then it's just exhausting. You feel sandpapered. Not in a that sexy happens. way. No, no, not in a sexy way. You know, um, do you remember the artist Michael Landy, his piece yeah. Breakdown? where he, he threw everything away. Threw everything away yeah. in 2002 or something. Just the thought of that made me sad and worried. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, it was, all, all went into like of, shredding machines, didn't it? Yeah. His clothes, his car. Every single uh, um, material possession he had, Yeah, he, he um, destroyed it. Do you remember when the KLF set fire to a million pounds? Yeah, but you see, I wouldn't... Uh, th- that I can get my head round more. Really? I, you see, I, I think that was a bad decision. <laughs> that was more of a political act, though, wasn't yeah. it? Because people were angry about them for not using the money to help other people, mm-hmm. uh, even though obviously that was not the point. The no. point was to ignore that exact thing and just concentrate on the on the, the physical yeah. idea of money and what it means and stuff like that. Although I still think they should have used it too. Well, exactly. You can't really get away from asking that question. But yeah. with Michael Landy, that it wasn't a problem. It was, it was all down to how it was going to affect himself. It was, mm-hmm. in a way, it was kind of a... Uh, a more disturbing piece, I thought. Yeah. Like to, to do that to your own life, to take yeah. away every single material thing. It's like suicide. I knew his girlfriend, Gillian Waring, brilliant artist. Yeah. It was her idea to get people to write down on a piece of paper what they were thinking oh, and then hold yes. it up. So yes. the famous one was like this kind of city businessman. Ransacked like, by the advertisers many times. Yeah, and so many times yeah. and completely ruined because it's been taken over. But, yeah. but it was... Um, it was this kind of businessman who looked very together and he was holding a sign that said, I'm desperate. Her, the most famous one, was um, uh, she got a load of people just as policemen to do a sort of group portrait, but not actually take it. They just had to, like, st- stand very still for, like, two hours as if it's a still photograph uh-huh. and not move. And then I think at one point, one person kind of goes, what, which is what I do on planes, just suddenly go, Woo! <laughs> <laughs> you talk about that in the psychopath test. Yeah. You! What, what is it that makes you do the noise? I was on a Ryanair flight and I was in the middle seat and, you know, the breakfast the snack pack was on my lap and I couldn't move and it's like, uh, and I couldn't scratch my leg and I wanted to get my notepad out because I had an idea for like a line from a book and I couldn't get it out and it's and I'm just kind of a, like that. And then I was very kind of, kind of excited that the, this i didn't know that such kind of noises existed within me i was yeah. quite, i felt quite overawed <laughs> <laughs> i felt awed by myself yeah yeah that's impressive behavior <laughs> <laughs> was the guy next to you looking at you like yeah oh dear people always do that on planes yeah how are you feeling at the moment by the way are you in a happy happy place no i have been and i'm less so now oh why is that um I don't know. I've been getting anxiety spikes lately. The last couple of days have been a bit... They're so tiring, you know? Anybody yeah. who gets, like, anxiety, you know, it just tire, you just get so tired. Yeah, yeah. So I'm tired. But I remember um, when I saw you um, and you were in the middle of writing The Psychopath Test, uh, you were pretty stressed out then. Yeah, it's funny. When it all works in the end, you look back on your kind of writing of the book... Like, oh, hello, hi. When in fact it was like, you know, pulling your face off. Sure. <laughs> and Jack Nicholson in The Shining. 
Um, I really want my son to be a writer because I think he'd be so good at it, but I'm such a terrible advertisement for writing because I just look so anguished when I'm doing it. Right. Um, Are you a nightmare at home then when you're in the middle of um, a uh, book and you're having a tough time? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am. Just grumpy. And... Grumpy and panicky. I wish I was grumpy, actually. It's yeah. more desperate and panicky. Um, finally, this public shaming book, though, it's been a long, long, long haul for lots of different reasons. Um, partly because it's so painful. You know, I find the subject very painful. Uh, and it was hard for me to find the humour. So that was one problem. Another problem was hard to find a narrative and hard for it to be a page turner. Mm. But I think I've got past all of those things now and I think the book will be really good, actually. So so I, I feel like I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Good, man. Yeah, so that's good. Can't wait to see it. Also, can't wait until some part of it is taken up and becomes a scandal and you are publicly shamed. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, I said, like, if I'm ever... Who was it? Uh, somebody had done something wrong and then immediately went off Twitter. And... Um, like didn't respond to any, and I sort of said, "I said, God, if that happened to me, you know, if I was ever publicly shamed, I promise you, I will be on Twitter like every ten seconds, you know, apologising and talking about it." And Tracy Thorne actually tweeted me and said, "You're the only person I know who's imagining how they will behave once they've been publicly shamed." <laughs> <laughs> um, only you would have that nightmare. Um, yeah, but then again, I am thinking about it a lot because it's what the book's course, about. Yeah, so, it. yeah, so I wouldn't say I'm, I'm that happy because I've been feeling lots of anxiety and I'm tired and a bit discombobulated. Oh, man. Um, but I'm happy because the book's definitely getting better. And in fact, before I saw you today, I was working on a chapter um, called The Terror. I think it's going to be called The Terror, this chapter, chapter eight. Mm. And it's coming together really well. So, uh, So that's... So much, so much about writing I've discovered is juxtaposition. So mm-hmm. much is just the order that you put things. Right. Um, like I've had this section of my book, which is one of the very, very first things I wrote like three years ago. And it's just been sitting there, just been kind of hovering there. And it wouldn't have made it to the book, except the last couple of days I thought, oh, if I put it there in chapter eight, it'll work. It's all about the flow of, of, of the kind of journey for the reader. Mm. That's the difference between success and failure. Um, Can't wait, man! And I'll get the audio book as well. I love your, I love the uh, the soothing sound of your voice. <laughs> yeah, my vo- my voice definitely divides people. I've noticed this. Some people think it's an annoying voice, and other people think it's a soothing. Voice. Yeah, I like it. It's a, it's a, I don't take this the wrong way, but it's a voice I find that you have to get used to. Yeah, but it's it's like David Sedaris. Mm. Who, yeah, he's the who, same. Who I absolutely adore. Yeah, but it's like the first. Literally, it's just five minutes, you know, but you're like, ooh, that's a strange voice. And then you uh, get into it. I mean, he's, he's, his voice is, I don't think of your voice as odd. I think he's got quite an odd voice. Yeah. I know what I haven't asked you about uh-huh. because you're a podcast fan, right? Mm. And um, what podcasts do you listen to? Okay, I am a very big fan of Mark Maron, WTF. Right, which I want to ask you about because you were on it. Yeah, I love it. I listen to the... Um, Breaking Bad Inside a Podcast with Vince oh, Gilligan, right. which is fantastically good. Uh, I listen to the Long Form Podcast, uh, where, which I've also been on, where they do like these big long hour interviews with writers and journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, oh No with Ross and Carrie, that's a funny skeptic podcast. Um, radio 4 Music, I think, is like a brilliant, it's like the best documentaries from the Radio 4 archive. That's been great. Um, a fantastic BBC World Service thing called the History Hour, which is brilliant. 
Like I always think there's like a like each one is like everyone is like a movie, you know, yeah. that hasn't been made. Um and then I listened to um This American Life, Mark Commode and Simon Mayo's film reviews. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Is this getting boring? Or is no, it? no, I, these are all good recommendations. Okay, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, I like. I found it very soothing and it puts me to sleep. And, and it contains a friend of mine called Rebecca Watson, who's very funny. Uh-huh. Do you listen to Melvin Bragg's one in our time? No, no, I don't. I should. Some of, the, some of them are very dense. Yeah. Um, but... I don't want to sort of think too much. Yeah. <laughs> I want to... uh, Front Row Daily, which yeah. is going to be slightly sullied by the fact that Mark Lawson's just left. Um, Arsecast, which is a very funny Arsenal podcast. Uh-huh. Um, the film programme, Answer Me This, with Helen and Ollie, sure. which I'm no, a big it... fan of. Uh, and Radio 4 General Knowledge Quizzes. I like WTF as well. Um, and I'm, again, going to ask you about that in a second. I, I love Todd Barry's podcast. Oh, I don't know that New one. York comedian. Uh, it's one of the many podcasts that's fairly forensic about the world of stand-up comedy and right. you know they discuss like what kind of hotels they stay in and how to get upgrades on planes and things <laughs> like that and <laughs> i really love it though plus todd barry's just very very funny right. and and I'm gonna subscribe, subscribe. um there's one called the comedians comedian podcast which i just listened to because it's got an interview with tony law uh-huh. um where tony law was just drunk out of his mind after a show in in edinburgh and it's very, it's funny with it. Um, so that was pretty enjoyable. Uh, oh, I love um, Richard Herring's oh, podcast, yeah, yeah, Rahalestapur. Yeah. yeah, you know what? I haven't yet heard it, but I'm going to do it in a couple of weeks' time when I'm in London. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, John, you were on WTF with Mark Maron. And uh-huh. you are one of a pretty elite group of Brits that's been on there. Yeah. Um, the ones that spring to mind are Stephen Merchant, Simon Amstel. Um, Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg, Dylan Moran. Uh-huh. All of those are big, big comedy names. You're one of the few sort of non-straightforward comedians yeah. to be on there. It's quite a compliment. And he's into your stuff because of um, uh, them, I think, was the thing that got him into I you. I think so, them and then the psychopath test. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually had him on my Radio 4 show, which I had you on too. That's right. Yeah, he he did this incredible podcast years ago with a comedian who was, who'd stolen jokes. Carlos Mencina. Carlos Mencia. Mencia. Uh, yeah, and um, so I had him talking about that. And, yes. And yeah, I was in LA. He, he just sort of said to me once, next time you're in LA, get in touch and we'll try and put you on the show. And, right. and so I was in LA and I did get in touch and he did put me on. Because before I came out here, um, but, and you were nice enough to, to name check me briefly on that show. Yeah, well, it's something I've been talking a lot about, actually. I do it in my Frank talk about the time that you and I had both not won a radio award. Yeah, the Sonys. Yeah, yeah the Sonys. And then we, I stepped outside to get some air and you were standing there too. I right. think we were both sick of the stupid basement. Yeah. This, you know, grand ballroom at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Yes. And I think we were both a bit sick of it all. Yeah, it's never fun if you don't win. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, that's my only experience. Yeah. I, at least you have won. But, but, but the night that we were there that yeah. we both lost and we went outside and I saw you outside and, and yeah, we were leaning against railings and the limos were going back and forward and you said to me, um, you know why we always lose? And I said, why? And he said, because we're marginal and the things that we like are marginal. And it was a big moment for me, you know, it's like it was sudden realisation. That, that must have occurred to you before though, hadn't it? No, no, the way you said it at right. that particular moment in my life meant something oh well that's good yeah i mean i do believe that but it's it's not as if i'm 
you know, completely uh, immune to uh, moments of anxiety I've about... wanting to be less marginal. Yeah, you know, of, of seeing my friends um, splashing around in the mainstream and thinking, oh, that would be fun. It would be fun to get things commissioned easily and mm. it'd be fun to be flown out first class or whatever. All those kind of things you think, yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice. But, but the rewards of, of ploughing your own furrow sometimes outweigh... Mm-hmm. a lot of the anxieties that you see those other people going through as well. My, my big mainstream moment, I suppose, yeah. was, you know, suddenly finding myself for a couple of weeks, you know, with George Clooney and the whole Minister at Goats movie sure. circuit, like going from like different festivals, Toronto and Venice and London. And that's probably as mainstream as it gets, yeah. right? And I wouldn't say that I've ever, you know, missed or yearned for that since. Right. I'm perfectly happy. Yeah, it's fun to have a look, though. It's fun to have a little look. It's not that... It's like being on a film set with George Clooney isn't the unimaginable fun that you (laughs) think it might be before it happens to you. I'll tell you what is unimaginable fun, though. I I got the chance to make a little short film, direct a little fiction short film uh, for Sky called uh, The Dog Thrower, starring Matthew Perry and Tim Key, and with music by Ben Sebastian. Wow. Yeah. And what an incredible group yeah. of people. And that week of me directing it in a completely stress-free way, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy this. That's great, man. Yeah, and, and that was unimaginable fun, actually. Yeah. Um, what I loved about it was getting to, to deal with, like, costume people and makeup people and sure. stuff. I thought that was brilliant. Uh, and, yeah, and when it finishes, they give you a round of applause. And I remember thinking... Um, you know, when I go to like a Ku Klux Klan compound and leave, like after I've like done my stuff there, I don't get applause. <laughs> no one applauds me. You don't really want applause from, the, the, clan. from the clan that much, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> but, um, um, so that was lots of fun. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, I, actually, my, my few brushes with the mainstream world, what I realised is that it's not, it's not chalk and cheese. You know, it's not night and day. It's all kind of the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so how was Marin? Great. He was, um, he, I mean, incredibly smart. I was very intimidated because mm. um, obviously he's, you know, the world's I think he's person. nice to people who he knows uh-huh. because after you mentioned my name on the podcast, right, mm. um, I think Johnny Greenwood uh, tweeted, oh, Mark Maron, you should get Adam Buxton on your show. Uh-huh. And then you sort of joined in a little bit and, and then a few people started tweeting, yeah, come on, Mark Maron, get him on. And so I thought, oh, look, there's all these people tweeting that maybe i'll maybe i'll just sort of throw my weight behind it and i wrote a blog post uh-huh. uh, as a um like it was a spoof of a really crap sort of cv uh-huh. uh, job application thing because um, i noticed that he tweeted well i'll have to familiarize myself with his stuff mm-hmm. so i thought okay rather than him searching for what i've done and just finding some something that he thinks is awful i'll try and guide him through the things that i think he might like mm-hmm. Because there's all kinds of weird stuff that I've done. Yeah. Um, and did anything happen? No. Nothing. No. But Death it's busy. silence. It did take two years for me to end up on his show. And, and when I turned up, I did think that he felt and I felt, what am I doing here? You know, do I deserve this? Because uh, it is, a, as you say, it's a big honour to be on a show. And, um, and it took a little while, I think, for us to both settle in and think, actually, this is fine. I, you know, I was thinking maybe he's just never going to put this out. He's just doing this to be nice to me. And he'll never put it out. But then it did go out and people did seem to like it. So, yeah. it, so it seemed to justify itself. Yeah, but great. I tell you what was unexpected. For somebody so intense and so sort of 
you know, intimidating. When he smiles or laughs, he becomes very kind of gentle mm-hmm. seeming and, and suddenly he's less, suddenly he seems quite vulnerable and sweet. Hmm. So there is that side to him. Um, he lives right out in the middle of nowhere in Los Angeles, like not in a fancy part of town at all, like in a very sort of anonymous sort of suburb, hmm. quite a long way from town. Um, and there's cats everywhere. And it's very small and and it's in his garage. And uh, it's funny to think that like every week, you know, Will Ferrell or, you know, uh, whoever, you know, these big Iggy Pop Mm. will sort of turn up to this little suburban house. Mm. I mean, he's really realised the potential of of podcasting in an amazingly effective way. I'm glad he put it. I I panicked that night. I, I woke up in the middle of the night and had a panic attack. I felt I'd given away too much about my book. Oh, right. Yeah, and I felt like the whole thing was just a mess and it was just a mistake and I just had this panic spiral. Oh, I don't think you can give away too much about something like that because it's it's never going to be the same as yeah. actually reading it. All well, before. I haven't told anyone like who's in the book, what stories, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all still secret. No, because I listened to the whole thing and, and uh, I thought it was great and I'm, it made me really excited to read it. Um, but listen, John, thank you so much. Thank um, you. I, my, my jet lag is kicking in now, so I hope I haven't been too uh No, I've enjoyed dopey. it. I've enjoyed it very much. Are you going to have like a couple of hours sleep before you go to UCB? No, 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 there's no way I'm going to take a nap before I go to UCB. I'm going to I'm going to be on my laptop preparing my set so that I can get there and be told by the tech guy that they didn't realize I needed a projector and I'm going to have to go back to the apartment and bring back the mini projector that I brought with me to New York and set that up on one of the seats at the front of the auditorium and ask a member of the audience to actually hold it and point it at the screen. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, that's how UCB's going to go. Anyway, John Ronson-wise, I caught up with John again yesterday on Skype. It was very futuristic. I don't know if you've used Skype. It's like uh, a fax, but you can see each other. And we chatted about how things have been going since the publication of So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Specifically, I wanted to know about some of the criticism John has received since its publication. I mean, I should say that the overwhelming reaction to the book has been positive and people have enjoyed it as much as I did. I really loved the book. And I recommend getting John's audiobook versions as well because he, he's very good at reading them. And it is, he does a... You know, it's like a performance. And so it turns it into a uh, an extended private performance with John Ronson. But we chatted briefly about some of the people that have taken issue with aspects of the book. And this is what John had to say. OK, so it started. One of the main stories in my book was about this woman called Justine Sacco, yeah. who was on a plane. She was about to get on a plane and she tweeted, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS just kidding, I'm white. And then when she was asleep on the plane, Twitter took control of her life and and wrecked it in a kind of unprecedented way. She was like the kind of, you know, ground zero of online shaming. Um, And And that's the story that really kind of sums up the book in many ways isn't it or it's 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 just, it's one of the main stories that you tell when you're promoting it and it's the one that people ask most about probably 
but so one of the things about that story is that she wasn't intending to be racist. She was coming from the comedic tradition. Admittedly, she wasn't a very good example of the comedic tradition, but of people acknowledging their privilege and then mocking it. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you can think of countless good good people who do that, like Randy Newman and South Park and so on. Um, anyway, so she did it badly. So, so she wasn't intending to be racist. She was, she was attempting to mock privilege. But she never got the opportunity to tell that to anybody because she was asleep on a plane while Twitter... Uh, ruined her, got her fired, mangled up her mental health, you know, just just changed her life unutterably. And when I say Twitter, what I mean is kind of nice people like us, because it wasn't trolls. It was, it was, you know, people like us who were, I think, ultimately trying to do something good. People who took the comment at face value and expressed outrage. Because, yeah, so it was the desire to be seen to be compassionate and also the desire to be compassionate caring about people dying of AIDS in Africa that led people to commit this uncompassionate act of tearing apart a woman while she's asleep on a plane and completely oblivious and completely unable to explain her joke. And in fact, her inability to explain her joke became a sort of part of the gaiety that night. Like, we're about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired. That's that's one of the tweets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this piece, so, so the book was extracted in the New York Times. That was the very first thing that happened to the book. And it was that story. And at first, it reminded me of like one time I was on a beach in Scotland and there was a flock of terns circling above my head. And then they started to dive bomb. And my wife was like yelling, you're too close to their eggs. And I'm like, I have no idea where their eggs are. Uh, I was like running back to the road, like shrieking with my arms in the air while these turns were dive bombing. Because at first, the kind of condemnation, I should say, by the way, it, it, like, most, like most of what happened was, was positive. Like people got it and understood and saw it as an important story and saw it as, you know, we thought that Justine Sacker was the villain, but now we understand that she was the, the victim. So most people saw it that way. But then a few people were like, a few very, uh, as it would turn out, relentless people <laughs> were like, um, at first they were like, oh, I can't believe John Ronson's bringing all this back again when we all moved on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, poor you. You know, Justine didn't move on. It took her a year to move on anyway. Um, And then it's like, oh, well, her father's a billionaire. You know, I don't have any sympathy for her. Her her father sells carpets. uh, But people had to create this kind of false narrative of her father being a billionaire because we need to dehumanise the people that we hurt. It's for the same reason that we call people sociopaths or whatever, um, because we want to hurt people and not feel bad about it. But then it was like, um, well, I can only assume that John Ronson's a fucking racist too. And that idea, like, we don't want to feel, we know we, you know, what it says to me is that, you know, we know we did something wrong, but we don't want to feel bad about it. And so we're going to scrabble around to try and find some reason why we can still feel okay about what we did. And one of those things was to, was to call me a racist. And then every time, I can't tell you, Adam, like all year, every time like a racist cop shoots somebody, I get like a flurry of tweets of, oh, are you going to... Are you going to put your cape on for this racist cop, Ronson? As if a liberal joke 
that came out badly is the same as a racist cop shooting somebody or, you know, waiting for John Ronson to whine about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the guy who buys up the drug company and hikes the price of AIDS drugs from $13 to $750. So basically everybody who was publicly shamed all year, regardless of the transgression, people were like, oh, looking forward to Ronson whining about that one. So, uh, you know, that that became... Yeah, depressing. Depressing, tiring, frustrating as well, because... And did you try to uh, answer back at all? Most of the time I didn't, because at one point at the beginning, I tweeted one thing. I just tweeted, oh, by the way, the, the excerpt in the New York Times isn't a standalone article. It's an excerpt from a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And straight away somebody tweeted, oh, now Ronson's saying it's an extract from a book. It's like, what the fuck does that mean? It was always an extract from a book. Or mm. did you think I kind of ran home and quickly wrote a book? And so that's what I realised, that like anything I say is just going to be more evidence for the prosecution. Yeah. Um, so I stopped talking. Somebody said, why isn't John Ronson replying to any of us? And somebody else wrote, because John Ronson only replies to men. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so for most of the time I stopped responding. Um, uh, once in a while, I kind of respond, and, and once in a while, I think I, I convince somebody of, of I convince somebody to see her story my way. Yes. Um, so sometimes, but it takes a lot of ener- a lot of energy, and and yeah. And how do you look back now at the period when you were writing the book? Was it you know because it turned out really well? Um, but were you excited at the time? Did you feel like it was going to go well? I mean, you could tell actually from that from when we met you know a year and a half ago and did that conversation yeah i wasn't like skipping home from meeting people like justine sacco and or lindsey stone rubbing your hands and thinking i'm gonna get a number one bestseller out of this (laughs) right no exactly i was i it it felt you know i was going home i had to i had to um well in fact after the book came out uh i gave i did this video um in new york about the book and there was a woman on in the studio before me who was doing a video about her book she was the doctor like a gp and um she said to me oh what's your book about and i said it's about public shaming uh, on the internet and she said oh did you read that piece in the new york times and i said i wrote it and she said oh you must be so happy and i said actually i'm not and she said why not and i said because there's a backlash with some people calling me racist and she said so what do you want and I said, um, Xanax? <laughs> and she got out her pad and wrote me a prescription for 60 Xanax. Um, so I, and I, I did notice throughout, throughout writing this book, for the first time ever, uh, it, it was a story that, that compelled me to take Xanax. I, I, was, I was waking up and having, a, you know, it was, a, it was all rubbing off on, on me. So what was it that was making you anxious, though? I think it was the fact, when I think about some of the other stories I've written, like, for instance, I I did this, you know, appallingly sad story like 15 years ago about a family of white separatists in Idaho called the Weaver family. And I spent a lot of time with one of the daughters. Up on Ruby and, Ridge, were they? Up on Ruby Ridge, exactly. And, and uh, the FBI killed... Uh, her mother and her brother shot her mother in the head while she was holding her baby. Just the saddest story 
you could ever you know think of and 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 I f- but when I left Rachel's house like I didn't feel that same sense of anxiety I, I, and I guess it's because you know that's a tragedy a long way away whereas the tragedies in this book we we are it's 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 stories about us it's um it's stories about we could be destroyed and we are destroying it's what we're doing kind of every day and 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 that was very kind of anxiety inducing and i thought i want to try the best compliment that the book gets is when people say it's like it's it, it's like reading, it's like a horror movie like their heart is pounding when they read it and that's what i was intending i think in the psychopath test i play my anxiety for laughs and in this book i want people to know what it feels like to have an anxiety attack So that was basically it as far as talking about John's work was concerned. But before we started talking about that yesterday on Skype, John asked me how things were going with the podcast. And I told him that I'd been getting some very good feedback from people via Twitter and also in the comments sections on my SoundCloud page and also on my blog where you can leave comments and I'd encouraged people to do so. I suppose the reason I did that was because feedback and interaction from listeners when I was on Six Music with Joe Cornish were so valuable and such an important part of the show and such an enjoyable part of the show, I had this notion that it would be great if I could carry that on somehow. But of course, it's much harder when the show isn't live, uh, when it's podcasted and pre-recorded and everything. It's very difficult to get that interaction going. And rather than leaving sort of funny stories the way that people used to for our radio show, some people have been leaving these quite detailed analyses and critiques of this podcast and what I do in general, which I wasn't really expecting. I mean, I did encourage people to send constructive criticism, but, uh, well, but nothing really, so I should shut up. And so so I got some. But it, it, it uh, tweaked a few of my insecurities and uh, slightly bent my mind. I did hesitate about whether I should include this in the podcast, but then I thought, eh, I may as well just for the sake of honesty, because I appreciate that I I can get things wrong sometimes. Um, But I thought it would be good to see what it's like reading these things from the other person's point of view. And in case you're worried, I did check with the guy who wrote me this. I'm not going to say his name. And actually, I didn't post it on my blog, so you won't be able to find it there. Um, I, I, because I moderate the comments on my blog, so I didn't approve that one. But I did get in touch with him and told him that I might talk about it on the podcast and uh, asked him if he was okay with that. And he wrote me a very nice reply indeed, apologizing for any confusion and saying that uh, it would be okay if I talked about it. So here's me relaying that message to John Ronson. Check this out. I still miss Adam and Joe on Six Music, so it's great to hear you started a new podcast, Adam. Listening to you and Louis Theroux was almost like listening to you and Joe, except Louis isn't quite as funny. You sound like you've mellowed with age, Adam, although maybe still a little too desperate to please. You you know, (laughs) he says, you know, people are just pleased to hear you. I think the slightly contrived comedy bits right at the end of the podcasts are probably unnecessary overkill. Just be yourself. Maybe a little less sweary. One of the reasons the Six Music Show was popular was your super nice guy image. You should stick with that. I do like you. 
That's quite a message, isn't it? Yeah. I, I remember um, this guy I wrote about in my public shaming book, a journalist called Jonah Lehrer, who, yeah. um, who had transgressed and had the chance to apologise. And um, what he didn't realise until he turned up to the site of his apology, which was a lunch at a journalist foundation, was that they were going to live stream his apology and, and they had a giant screen Twitter feed right next to his head so anybody watching at home could could tweet their opinion on his pleas for forgiveness in real time and every single tweet was going into his eyeline so he was reading people's response to his apology while he was apologizing and I asked him afterwards um you know which of the tweets do you remember the most like which hurt the most and he said it it wasn't it wasn't the kind of just, you know, the kind of crazily cruel ones. It was the ones that mixed in a bit of tenderness. <laughs> and that's what your, that's what that, that, that letter that you just read out did. It mixed in a bit of tenderness and that's what hurts the most. It really got under my skin for a couple of days and it took, it, I actually had to go and walk the dog and talk to myself and talk my way through it as if I was my own therapist and I, I came to the conclusion that, of course, it was meant totally nicely. He wasn't trying to fuck with my mind, yeah. but he pushed so many buttons. It was incredible. <laughs> it was like, I think there's five. What, you, what were the buttons? Well, first of all, listening to you and Louis Theroux, almost like listening to you and Joe, except Louis isn't quite as funny. And so I felt hurt on Louis's behalf and I didn't agree. And I also felt that he was implying that Joe was like the comedy Joe was the funny one. Yeah, he was the senior comedy partner and I had drafted in Louis as a replacement, but uh Louis wasn't quite matching up, so altogether that was a failed exercise. Um, can I can I interject with, yeah. with the with the observation that I I'm not sure that Louis necessarily tries to be funny. That's that's not what Louis's about. No, exactly. He's, yeah, he's 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 more about trying to get things out of people. I mean, Louis is a funny guy, but um, his mm. main thing is to be kind of uh, analytical, I suppose. Yeah, analytical and interested. You're you're right. It's yeah. a different type of it's a different type of communication. Yes. So I was able to rationalise that one. You sound like you've mellowed with age, Adam. Although maybe still a little too desperate to please. Gotta say that one's hard to. <laughs> What, okay about what do you do one. what do you do with that because <laughs> there's because nothing you can do no, with that because there's two responses to that either you because you are desperate to please say oh i'm so sorry i'll try yeah. not to be so desperate to please in future or you say fuck off <laughs> i'm not fucking desperate to please you fucking twat but then <laughs> that's probably a little too yeah, aggressive that's bad too. yeah that's too aggressive yeah and then he goes, you know, people are just pleased to hear you. Basically, I've come off my entire career thus far sounding like someone who's just about to crumple into a ball if anyone says anything nasty to him. That lad was him saying in a, in a gentle voice, um, it's, it's OK. It's OK. Yeah, you're yeah. fine. Exactly. You know, people are just pleased to hear you. And then I think the slightly contrived comedy bits right at the end of the podcast are probably unnecessary overkill, he says. And again, that zeroes in on an anxiety I have about most things I do, which is that I over-egg the pudding and I put too much stuff in because I like listening to things that are, are quite dense myself. But then on the other hand, 
I'm always reminded that the more you strip things down and the simpler you keep things, generally, the, the, the better they work. So it might be an indication that, that he's, you know, he's, he's zeroed in on one area that probably I could trim things down and it would improve the thing rather than weaken it. Although I've been getting a lot of messages about those bits at the end of the podcast from people who like them. And I always think, well, they're just... It's at the end of the podcast. You don't have to listen to it. That's like a little bonus thing for for people who've made it that far and are still listening. You know. Yeah, I I I very much like your songs. I, I think you should do a different song every episode. Right? <laughs> Could you do that from now on? Well, I have got a song in this one. I've got uh, a, I've got a new Bond song, uh, a, a new song for the new James Bond movie. Because I did, right. I did one before for Quantum of Solace. Me and Quantum Joe of Solace, I remember it. Uh, I want a Quantum of Solace, but only a quantum. Yeah. What's the next slide? I know they do big bags of solace, but I don't want them. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Oh my goodness, the self-indulgometer is about to explode over there in the corner. And now I'm going to wrap up this podcast in a way that's going to disappoint that fellow once again with uh, another one of my slightly contrived comedy bits. More unnecessary overkill from Buckles. But that's because I'm desperate to please. All right. Uh, so a lot of people were saying, hey, you should have a crack at the new Bond theme for, for the Spectre movie. Of course, myself and Joe, as John pointed out there, myself and Joe did uh, themes for the Quantum of Solace a few years ago on the Six Music Show. This is something altogether different. A lot more epic. A lot more stirring. A lot more in the spirit of what James Bond is really all about. Take care. I love you. Bye. Guns, 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 guns.
fighting and great. I'm officially allowed to shoot one by the state. Modulate. I am Timothy Bond. I have a shiny, powerful gun. I'm like a kind of handsome Jeremy Clarkson. I like to sleep with a lot of women. Drive my car into the sea. I get my suits and guns and DVDs for free. Fight, 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 fight.